Welcome to the newsroom. I'm your guest host, Kelly Kenoyer. On today's show, we're playing the what if game. What if New Hanover County spent its proceeds from the hospital sale on one cause? It's a question we've been asking here at WHQR because of the unimaginable amount of money floating around between the hospital sale and COVID relief funds. But first, I brought WHQR's own Cami Mojica into the studio to chat about some of the other money floating around in the region. Welcome, Cami. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So you've been following the money trail from the American Rescue Plan Act here in the Cape Fear region. That's the COVID relief fund that passed earlier in 2021 at the federal level. Can you tell me about how much money the city and county got? Well, the city of Wilmington got $26 million from the ARPA and the county got $45 million. Both put out plans pretty quickly about how they'd spend it, and so far they've spent about a combined $9.6 million. Some of that has gone to affordable housing, right? I seem to remember that the affordable housing project called Starway benefited from ARPA funds. Yeah, Starway is a workforce housing project aimed at people who make 60% of the area median income or less. That's about $754 a month in rent for a one-bedroom. The county contributed about $1.9 million in its federal relief funds to that project, and the city gave $3.5 million. And that's basically gap funding to help get that workforce housing project off the ground. But what was the other ARP funding spent on? Well, the county has spent more than $3.9 million on business and employment assistance. So more than half of that went to business grants and the rest going to nonprofit assistance and job training programs. They're pretty cool. Step Up Wilmington not only helps people find jobs, but they help them actually secure them. So they support people along the way. That's neat. So they've spent about 12 percent. That leaves a lot unaccounted for still. But they only got access to this money earlier this year. So what's the deadline from the feds? They still have a lot of time to figure it out. The county and the city have until December of 2024 to allocate the funds, and they have to spend it by 2026. So considering they only received this money earlier this year and only got official guidance in May, it makes sense that they haven't spent everything yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And taking time spending some of it leaves room for flexibility. Definitely. ARPA isn't the only money here, though. You told me you pulled together the overall funding available in the region and came up with more than half a billion dollars. What's the rest of it? So there's $84 million in the school district from ESSER funds, which our colleague Rachel Keith has been digging into. Those are earmarked for education and came from the Federal CARES Act, which is another COVID relief bill. But there's also the hospital sale, right? Yeah, that's the biggest chunk of change for sure. $350 million that the county received from the hospital sale. Wait, I thought the hospital sold for $1.5 billion. It did, but the county gave a lot of that money, $1.2 billion, to a nonprofit community endowment. That independent board will invest the money, then give grants totaling 40 to $50 million a year from the dividends. And in a move that rankled a lot of folks in the area, it's not a public entity and isn't required to have an open process. Can the county spend that billion dollars how it wants to? No, they gave it to the endowment fund and no longer have control over it. As for the grants that come out of the profits from the endowment, the county would have to apply for those just like anyone else. But they did keep some money from the hospital sale, $350 million from the hospital's cash reserves at the time it sold. That money went to the county with no strings attached, and the county commission just last summer decided to make it into a revenue stabilization fund. It's expected to generate perhaps $3 million a year in profits in the first year, now that the county has voted that money into that pot, it would take a supermajority of four out of five commissioners to pull it out and spend it. They did that recently, though, right? Didn't the county open up that funding to address community violence after the New Hanover High School shooting? They did. 
Community officials called a joint meeting between the school board and the county commission in the weeks after the shooting. At that meeting in early September, the county commission voted unanimously to open up the $350 million to addressing community violence and tasked county manager Chris Coudre with coming up with a plan. Wow. Yeah. Coudre came back in October with an $89 million plan to address the issue. But when he presented it, Commissioner Jonathan Barfield pointed out that $200 million of those funds had already been invested. Then he and two other commissioners voted to put guardrails on the plan, requiring budget amendments to use that money that way. So there's about $150 million in liquid assets left with the rest invested in the county? Yeah. I think they can still vote to pull the rest out. And it's unclear whether they've actually delayed investing the rest in favor of using it to stop community violence. But this entire debacle gave me the idea for the podcast episode we're about to jump into. If we gave 100% of that money to just one cause or to just one advocate, how much of a difference could the county make? If the focus were an area like affordable housing, I mean, it's just almost mind-boggling how much we could finally move the needle. Something on the order of $350 million dollars I mean, absolutely, that's not just a shot in the arm. That's not just moving the needle. I mean, we could we could aspire to, I mean, knocking out housing crisis in our community. And if you get high wealth and low wealth people riding the same transit service, it has a great community impact on uh, understanding of different economic classes and racial classes and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's just a huge opportunity, and it would be a real game changer for our city. To work on erasing all the medical debt of people who live here, because medical debt is one of the major reasons for bankruptcy in this country. So releasing that would be enormous for people here. Those are just a few of the ideas from some of the guests on today's show. Cool. I'm excited to hear it. Thanks, Cammie, and thanks for coming on. No problem. You're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR, where we're spending a full episode on a question of political imagination. That is, what could this county achieve if it committed to spending $350 million to solve just one problem? We chose that amount because it's what the county received from the sale of the hospital this year. Coming up next, housing advocate Katrina Knight will tell us how just a fraction of the hospital sale funds could end chronic homelessness in New Hanover County, and how the rest of it could very well solve the issue of housing affordability in the region. I'm here with Katrina Knight, the executive director of Good Shepherd and a major player in housing advocacy in the Cape Fear region. So Katrina, pretend I am the county Mm -hmm. and I just say, Katrina, Here's $350 million. Can you Uh house every chronically homeless person for the foreseeable future? What would you do if you were given that giant Mm -hmm. pot of money and just told to solve the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it wouldn't even require $350 million to tackle the chronically homeless issue. Uh, While they are the most visible subpopulation of that group, they they are numerically not the largest. So even... Even post-Florence, even with the pandemic, while our unsheltered group has increased, and probably along with that, to some extent, our chronically homeless population, the good news is we are not, we are not a New York, we are not a D.C., Chicago, you know, we're still probably only, at worst, talking about 100 people. Uh, You know, you could easily, with a development here of 24 units, a development there of 32 units, 
you know, you could uh, make a real dent in that population with much less than the $350 million. Like the supportive housing, right? Right, absolutely. And if it is supportive housing, there's the the added piece in the mix where the best practice version is to have on-site supportive services for folks, which are not inordinately expensive, but it is an annual an annual cost to, for example, have that full-time social worker making sure that you know this elderly gentleman is able to get to and from the grocery store when he needs to, or this veteran is reliably able to get to uh, the VA medical center to have his needs met. You know those those kinds of things. It's it's a very cost effective strategy when you look at the savings to the community in terms of you know public. Um, public services access, which can be disproportionate amongst that group if you don't have this kind of housing with services. Um, but again, that is a consideration for um, if you have an eye toward the long term and making it successful for the community long term, that, that definitely is in the mix of something to be budgeted for every year. You're referring to the cost of uh, emergency medical care, um, police calls. That's the cost mm-hmm. you're referring to if they're not, if these folks are not housed, correct? Right. You know, there have been many studies around the country, but over the years, often the the rule of thumb is you know, a chronically homeless person who, for whom the, the community or a certain provider hasn't quite figured out how to, how to engage them or how to uh, get them into a, a more permanent situation, that individual can cost the community, you know, upwards of $50,000 a year just in terms of their quite often frequent use of the ER, uh, uninsured, other hospital services, uh, law enforcement, not necessarily committing a crime, but just by virtue of, you know, wandering around town at all hours or uh, if, if someone should have a a mental illness that is severe and persistent and going untreated, you know, they, there may be calls on them even just out of concern by different folks out in the community. So when you, you add all that together, uh, it can be quite costly to the community, you know, versus uh, it being no more expensive to actually have that person in housing. Um, what we have found in our own supportive housing, for example, at Lakeside Reserve, is that just by virtue of having a reliable roof over your head, our folks are experiencing reductions in their use of the ER and the hospital as high as 75%. Wow. So that saves all of us. So tell me how much it costs to build SECU mm-hmm. Lakeside Reserve and how many people that building mm-hmm. supports. So we budgeted about $5 million for the actual construction. And we, we had to build it in, in two phases as we worked to raise the funds that were needed. Uh, importantly, it was a real combination of private support from this community, people sending in their their donations uh, individually or as families, also uh, foundations, the SECU Foundation for one, but also uh, smaller gifts from foundations. So $5 million to build 40 one-bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. So, and how much is it for, like, annual operating costs after that, would you say? You know, our annual operating is fairly modest in large part it's kind of artificially low because for us it just operates as another program of good shepherd and so so it's it's a bit artificially low to say you know probably between 125 and 150,000 dollars a year i guess the reason that i'm asking such detailed questions mm-hmm. about the economics of this mm-hmm. is because it's it's almost stunning to me that it would maybe just be 10 million dollars to get 
two more of those built, mm-hmm. and then under $500,000 for all three to be operated every year. So right, right. if you were handed yes. $350 million, <laughs> I mean, right. chronic Com- homelessness would be done. Right. Compared to the compared to the figure you're dealing with, right, you know, in our world, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money. And so when you start talking about five or $10 million to do even more, that can really give us pause because it seems so daunting. You know, it's almost unimaginable to, to think about an amount of that size. We're, we're so used to dealing with restricted resources. You know, with housing, there's so many different directions you could go to make housing affordable and accessible to every one of our residents in the community. So I could imagine are really building on things that already exist in the community, but that we just can't provide enough of. So for example, there are rental assistance kinds of efforts afoot, and they're very effective at at lifting individuals and families out of sort of a subsistence level kind of living and helping them really kind of gain their footing, use more of their money out in the economy toward other kinds of things and not disproportionately just toward their rent and utilities. We can only perform a fraction of the assistance that is needed in that area right now. And so where possibly hundreds, if that many, households might receive that in a good year here, there are clearly thousands who could use that. And so we all benefit when people are not spending an outsized proportion of their income just on their housing. And, you know, we've learned just in the last year, pre-COVID, one in two of our neighbors was spending way too much on their housing. I'm kind of thinking about the basic economics classes I've taken. You know, there's when supply is constricted, that's when prices go up. So do you think that that $350 million could go towards increasing the supply? And how far do you think it could go if it was directed towards that? You know, I think many folks in the community are, are hoping that uh, whether private or public, that significant investments will be made over the next several years in the supply of affordable housing. And so uh, there are some creative ways, I think, not inexpensive sometimes, but uh, of sort of getting hold of some of our existing modest homes, for example, uh, rehabbing them and making sure that they are they are held within an inventory of affordable rentals, let's say, or they are turned over as an affordable home ownership opportunity opportunity for folks. Um, but production has to be part of it. And I know, I know many in the community feel kind of weary of what they see as lots of development going on. But most of what we see is, is luxury development or additional units for folks who already have lots of options. And the comprehensive housing study that New Hanover County and the city of Wilmington commissioned that came out uh, over a year ago you know, that has really shown us that there there will be a need for housing at all levels of income as the greater Wilmington community grows. But the most acute need, no surprise, is for folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And production has got to be part of it. We don't have a lot of land left here, but, but where we do, you know, providing some more density, providing more opportunities for people to have a decent place to live, that doesn't consume more than 30% of their rent, that has to be something that we really rally behind. We are at least 10,000 units short in the city in New Hanover County. And that's a very big number to try to, to, try to tackle, but we, we, have to, 
we have to begin chipping away at that. And production absolutely would be uh, a huge piece of that. Anything else you want to add on how you would spend this dream money? And I'm sorry, I didn't really break the 350 down. I I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. It is really (laughs) incomprehensible. I know. I mean, what a nice problem to have, you know, to to have such a, a big figure. You know, I think of other situations much more modest that I've been in before where uh, it's such a tremendous opportunity, and yet you feel such a tremendous responsibility to be a great steward because how many times does an opportunity like this come before an organization, come before a community? There's really the opportunity for this to be truly transformative. And if the focus were an area like affordable housing, I mean, it's just almost mind-boggling how much we could finally move the needle. And I think that's that's what is so troubling a lot of the time is that we, we work and we fight and we fundraise and we, we work so hard just to bring 12 units online or 24 units online or, you know, in a very happy situation, 250 units online. But when the measurement is, oh, your gap is 10,000, possibly more than 10,000, you know, that's really sobering and it, and it can feel like, oh, gosh, are we really making a difference? And so something on the order of $350 million, I mean, absolutely, that's not just a shot in the arm. That's not just moving the needle. I mean, we could, we could aspire to, I mean, knocking out housing crisis in our community. It's almost inconceivable, but it's, it is our vision that every resident of our community have access to decent and affordable housing. Yeah. So what an exciting thing to, to picture and imagine. Thank you so much to Katrina Knight for coming on the newsroom. Coming up next, we'll hear from a public planning expert on what the hospital sale money could do for Wilmington's main streets or for rail realignment. Then we'll chat with NAACP President Deborah Dix Maxwell about a wide variety of ideas, ranging from education to wiping out medical debt. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Kenoyer in for Ben Shockman. This week, we're exercising our political imaginations to ask the question, what if? What if New Hanover County decided to spend its $350 million pot of cash from the hospital sale instead of putting it into a revenue stabilization fund? A bit later, we'll hear from NAACP President Deborah Dix Maxwell about education and medical debt. But first, a look at urban design with my next guest, Glenn Harbeck. I guess, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself for folks who might not know who you are? I am Glenn Harbeck. I am the former, recently retired, Director of Planning, Development, and Transportation for the City of Wilmington. If I had $350 million to spend on the physical structure of Wilmington, I would focus on our major streets because our major streets are the window to the world. They're what our residents see. They're what our our bus transportation travels on. They're what visitors to our city travel through may perhaps on the way to the beaches, they're what potential investors in the city of Wilmington see when they come to Wilmington. They see those major streets, and they um, 
that is that is revealing as to the character of our community. So what does that mean? It means I would focus on getting street trees planted everywhere. I would say that means uh, strategically, it's very expensive to put overhead utilities underground, extremely expensive, but I would focus on a few critical areas in the city and get our overhead utilities underground so that our street trees can thrive, so they don't grow up into wires and have to get chopped out. Um, that's really where I would, I would focus the, uh, that $350 million. And, and believe it or not, that would help our economic development. It would help with um, some equity issues relative to people who don't have their own automobile and they might be standing out in the rain. Uh, it, that, that same street money could be applied for bus shelters uh, or the street trees would give people shade. Um, Sidewalks, obviously, are all part of a streetscape. I would make complete streets, not just streets, not the the asphalt raceway with uh, parking lots, a sea of asphalt on the left and right. So I would really focus on our streets. But again, that's a city planner's perspective, not necessarily for everybody. Yeah. So can you give me an example of which streets you would change? Well, I'll give you an example of some great streets. Um, I think Market Street, um, from downtown out to 17th, with the central median, uh, and the uh, street canopy and the uh, understory um, azaleas planted within the median, a landscaped median with sidewalks on both sides, on-street parking, which provides a buffer between the cars and the folks on the sidewalks. Um, I think uh, Market Street's an ex- excellent example. And that's why I said before when you asked me, well, this is, your, this is a new question, but you're um, you asked me what would be an ideal city, I would say I'd, I'd look to the 1945 corporate limits. The 1945 corporate limits has got a lot of on-street parking. And so that's a very efficient way of parking cars. When you have on-street parking, you have a lot less asphalt because, and, and in our area that's important because of stormwater runoff uh, and, and flooding. If you can minimize the amount of asphalt it takes to accommodate cars and make the city more walkable, then you don't have the issue with the flooding. That's all part of the focus on streets. It, and, and the concept, if you look it up or you Google it, you Google it under the name of complete streets because complete streets have all the elements that are good for cars but also good for pedestrians and bicyclists and buses. Yeah. I was going to say uh, Fifth Street probably fits. Fifth Street is another great example. There's been a proposal on the books for several years now about converting Fifth Avenue, which really is what the proper name is, I guess, uh, from Greenfield Lake all the way up to the downtown area as a bicycle boulevard because traffic is not heavy on Fifth Avenue. And so if you could have uh, an outside lane, for example, on Fifth Avenue uh, dedicated to a bicycle boulevard and still accommodate cars at the same time at slower speeds, that's a a win-win. And that would provide a super connection between uh, the good stuff that's happening down at uh, Greenfield Lake South Front Street area uh, credit to the tribute companies, the Major family there, uh, and and downtown Wilmington. So uh, would love to see Fifth Avenue uh, also uh, made a more complete street because yeah. it, it's it's a good street. It's got those that great canopy of trees. It's got the sidewalks. It's got on street parking. Um, so it's uh, it's another example that would be would be a good 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 call on your part. Option two would be rail realignment. Um, that idea is not new. It's been on the books uh, as far back as 1980 that I'm aware of, but it's been a real dormant. It's been a real sleeper. But with the advent of 
10, potential 10,000 foot long trains and virtually uh, no customers for freight, freight train service in the city of Wilmington, there's an opportunity to um, get rail on a direct line into the state port. And when that's done, then to repurpose the existing loop of the rail, which at one time went around the city, now goes right through the heart of the city as the city expanded, that there'd be an opportunity to convert that rail corridor into a greenway beltway and even some sort of a trolley service with the advent of all these battery-powered uh, trolley cars. You don't even have to have overhead wires and cantonary. Um, so you could have a trolley service that would really pull together all areas of the city uh, from the north side out to UNCW and from UNCW all the way down to um, South Front Street area. And it would go through neighborhoods of all incomes. Uh, I've talked with people in Forest Hills, for example. Uh, as you know, that's not a, 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 an unwealthy neighborhood. Uh, and, and people would love to be able to get on a trolley service, a quiet trolley, trolley service, as opposed to a freight train, which goes through there now, and be able to ride that trolley service downtown for concerts, uh, for dining, for enjoying our riverfront, our riverwalk. Uh, but also there's all kinds of, of low-income housing along that same line. And if you get high-wealth and low-wealth people riding the same transit service, it has a great uh, community um, impact on uh, understanding of different economic classes and racial classes and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's just a huge opportunity, and it would be a real game-changer for our city. And it would be separated from traffic, too. And it would be separated from traffic. Not only that, but it would eliminate... 32 at-grade street crossings that if a 10,000-foot-long train is on the south side of town, for example, it will block every single north-south street across the entire city all the way out as far as Carr Avenue. So um, it has benefits beyond it, uh, just uh, a trolley service. It has benefits in terms of just getting cars around our city. Um, and also making uh, service into the port more efficient, uh, hopefully making our, our – uh, we've we, we got a situation with ports all over the country with the, the supply chain, and um, the last mile, the last mile of delivery is part of that supply chain, and our last mile happens to go through the heart of our city, on trains anyway. And $350 million, do you think that would be enough leverage with federal dollars to get that done? No, I, I think that's a, an expensive proposition. Uh, but most things that are really worthwhile don't come cheap. Um, rail realignment will take a while, but if that $350 million could be applied to the biggest chunk of the expense of that initiative, and that is getting a bridge, a rail bridge, a new, new rail bridge across the river, uh, perhaps in concert with a re replacement bridge for the lift bridge, if those two could be combined, I think $350 million would go a long way toward getting that uh, bridge built. And then the rest of it would be a whole lot easier. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> that was Glenn Harbeck, the former planning director for the city of Wilmington, sharing his thoughts on how the county could spend the hospital money. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the newsroom on WHQR. I'm your host, Kelly Knoyer. We're exploring different ways the county commission could spend the $350 million it has from the sale of the hospital. My next guest is NAACP President Deborah Dix-Maxwell, who has a lot of thoughts of where that money could make a big difference in the community. Well, one thing I want is universal pre-K. 
and that would definitely would not take the three hundred and fifty million, but it would allow every child aged three to five equity when they enter the school system at kindergarten, because right now that's not equitable. Um, I would definitely look at the housing crisis. The city has been good in terms of housing, like the HOP program and things. I would, until we get the universal pre-K, this is my dream if I had one money anyway. I'd put volunteers, like senior volunteers or whoever, pay for them to go into our low-performing schools, which would be acting like as TAs to increase the um, academic readiness of those students. So you would invest in education? I would, in education, also housing. I would also look, it's called, it's called, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's a medical debt program that pays pennies on the dollar. It's, um, it's a race medical debt, and we have never done it in this county. But let's say if you got a $10,000 medical debt, maybe a hundred or two hundred would erase that debt because of the collection to work on erasing all the medical debt of people who live here because medical debt is one of the major reasons for bankruptcy in this country. So releasing that would be enormous for people here, enormous for people anywhere. I have these dreams. I, I dream I won the lottery. So I go to sleep with what I'm going to do. I would create a housing program for those who are already in housing, to go and interview them, find out without being intrusive, because I'm gonna to need to find out their um, income and stuff, and work with them on improving the landscape of their housing. And I don't mean the, the outside, the interior, if it needs painting, if it needs this, this would be a low interest program and teach them about partition sales. Um, leaving the house to one person or a stable person because that's why a lot of the houses are gone because it's family. Um, we've held um, workshops on land loss already. We, we need another one. Um, but it's not all, all on us. And to provide that, that education and people say that's black. No, it's anybody black or white. I got classmates my age who like you, you know, we're all going through the same issue with housing in this area, those of us who are from here. It's a no-brainer. Um, and once people understand that and be able to keep their residence themselves, because it's a lot cheaper for me to fix that house than for you to try and rent one and then gain that equity back and keep it in there. Um, so a lot of people are selling because they don't understand or get the people who have left because we sent so many people away from this county. We, so, we could start our own school if we brought every black educator back who didn't get hired by New Hanover County Schools. I guarantee you, if I put a, a call out, we got principals, assistant principals, every type of teacher somewhere else not here. Because they wouldn't hire them? They didn't get hired and the pay was lower at that time. Some didn't get hired and some chose not, you know, but yeah, they aren't here is the bottom line. They didn't come back home and some who tried didn't get hired. 
I noticed, uh, I looked at the census numbers over the summer, and the only population in New Hanover County that's decreased is the black population. Well, you had a hurricane that displaced a lot of people in 2018. When people get displaced, they generally don't come back. Because we got Katrina people here from Louisiana. Wow. Yeah, they live, they, they've moved here since, you know, from Katrina. I've met them in different specters here. So when people get displaced, they don't, don't, don't go back. Um, also, the housing issue has a lot to do with it. Um, once you work on the educational issues, it's real easy to combat the violence issues because, oh, how did I fund Freedom Schools? Because I was one of the people on the forefront of that. That's going to be our summertime longitudinal educational program for kids. So what's a Freedom School? Freedom School is a curriculum-based program set up for children of color, and the curriculum was based out of the Children's Defense Fund, which was founded by Marion Wright Edelman. It is a six-week program that offers education. Um, children get a book every week to take home, and this is our, this summer will be our third year doing it. It's based through communities and schools here. So to fund that, so that it will offer it for more children. And so before that program began, the NAACP offered a free summer camp for kids called Sankofa, which this church allowed us to house over in this um, church school part. So once that came about, we didn't have to worry. There was an entity for the kids to go to instead of just sitting home looking at yourself in the summer. So to increase to increase that because New Hanover County School paid for it this year and they had their little hands tied on it. So to not for them not to be encumbered by barriers like that. Mm. Um, I probably, I do this to, to make myself go to sleep at night. You know, I can't sleep. What you do if you win the lottery? So, <laughs> so you know, I'm trying to think now, what else have I thought of lately? It works because I never spend all the money before I fall asleep. <laughs> so, also to um, educate people about their rights, because we as a country and a society are some of the most misinformed voters. And to have a large voter education, not registration, education. There are lots of groups around here getting paid to register, but everybody's not truly educating. Um, what would you want people to know? that they need to vote each and every time first. People don't even know what their precinct is. Um, people live in Castle Hay want to vote in the mayor's race. You know, <laughs> you know, no, you, you don't live in town. Uh, to under, truly be more educated, if you travel, you find people in any other country are very knowledgeable about who's in what place. And we have a lot of misinformation to, um, make sure it's correct. We also need to have financial literacy too. We offered six series on Facebook through a credit union. Oh, it was wonderful. And if you have people who understand how to vote, they understand their financial literacy, and I'm leaving it up to Novant to do the health part. See, that's why I'm not putting that in there. That's their job. Do you know how well-rounded this community would be? The drop in trauma, the drop in gun violence, 
the drop of school violence, it will be astronomical. Yeah, the investments that we could make. Into ourselves and in our community. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, no problem. That was Deborah Dix Maxwell, the president of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. Coming up next on the newsroom, we'll hear from Marie Parker, the executive director of Wave Transit. She has a lot of ideas on how this money could revolutionize transportation in New Hanover County. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. We're exploring different ideas of how to spend available public funds to fix problems in the New Hanover County area. My next guest is Marie Parker, the executive director of Wave Transit. So Marie, we've talked in the past about how Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, could transform Wilmington's transit system. But it's really expensive to build. So if you had this $350 million, would you be able to leverage it with federal dollars to get this kind of project built? You know, I keep saying the the two components to a successful transit system is it has to be fast and it has to be frequent. So if you resolve those two problems and you give people a different opportunity or a different option other than using their car, they start using it. Um, and then it becomes natural and then you have people that are growing up in a place that has that system network. They'll use it and they'll go to other cities and use public transportation. Um, but the more you use something naturally, the more revenues you're bringing in. But that also goes into an account for uh, a formula that the FTA uses in order to grant you your next fund cycle. So the more people that ride, the more money that you get from the federal government. And in turn, of course, you get more revenues from from the passengers. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, So if we had this kind of BRT, how do you think that would impact traffic on some of the major corridors that we have in Wilmington? Uh, it would be a, a major factor in, in uh, mitigating traffic congestion. Uh, we do have some of those spots that are very congested and difficult to get through, especially through peak times. Um, you know, the whole thing would be to change the culture and to get people to utilize the transit system. And the first step in doing that is making it reliable, making it fast and frequent so people want to use it and they're encouraged to use it. But definitely it could, it could be a huge catalyst in changing the way that people move in Wilmington and the way that the traffic, and I know the traffic continues to be one of the top complaints from citizens. So it would it would contribute to that greatly. Gotcha. Uh, I guess. Do you want to just sort of paint me a picture of like what it would look like as a commuter if this system were in existence for us now? Oh wow! So the transit utopia. Um, like I said earlier, you, depending on where you are, and they also have these places called transit-oriented developments, where the whole impetus is to start with transit and to build around it. So you're going to build this large network and you can have um, townhomes, apartment homes, houses all built around this knowing that people want to be near public transit because they can use it. It's frequent. Um, It makes everything easier. It is a um, it's a service to them. It's a benefit for living in that area. So, you know, you may be able to have someone that lives a few blocks away. You could have somebody that lives a couple of miles away. Maybe they could take their bike, um, ride it on a bike path, or they can have a walking path and get there. They could put their bike in a rack. Um, They have 
um, places where you can purchase your passes right there on the platform. So it doesn't need to be a place that's manned. You walk right up to it, put your credit card in, get a pass. You know, the train comes along or the bus comes along. Two, three, four, five minutes later, the doors pop up and you get on, sit down, plug into whatever Wi-Fi is available, and then you get to your destination. Or you get someone that's very close to your destination, which is ideal, which is what everyone wants. It sounds kind of similar to taking the subway in New York or something. Correct, except it's a bus. Um, and that could be a traditional bus. It could be a 35- or a 40-foot bus, or you could have articulated buses, which are just you know the accordion style in the middle with the two longer units, which, of course, accommodates a lot more people if you have a lot more people using it. But they have dedicated lanes. They have the transit signal priority, so they are able to have that frequency and and that fastness. So uh, did you kind of do the back of napkin math for your top priority uh, BRT lines and how much each of them might cost? I did. I started with, you know, my personal knowledge and experience coming from Raleigh. We were implementing BRT and getting started on that project there. So I do have some familiarity. There's also, you know, some other cities that have implemented it and they've done it at an $11 million per mile price tag. But that is from, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago when they started planning. They had already, um, the biggest part of it is, of course, buying the land. So maybe they already had some of the land purchased. And then the cost, um, of course, goes up from there. So um, just knowing what I have experienced and the cities that I have familiarity with, that is the biggest consumer of, you know, if you're going to have an imaginary $350 million. But even if you don't, if you have something much smaller, there's so many opportunities in transit to even have more robust bus system, you know, minus the BRT system. There's a lot of opportunities that can be had. Gotcha. So say, for example, the Market Street uh, line that you were talking Mm -hmm. about, uh, how many miles would that be for you to have a, a fast, functional BRT line that serves a lot of people along Market? I think a Market from downtown to Gordon is 11 miles. So there is $200 million right out of the gate. So, it, yeah, like I said, it's a, it's a huge investment, but it has such a huge return as well. Yeah, I mean... Market's such a nightmare for traffic. It is. It is. Yeah. And if you have that dedicated lane, you can still have, you know, the people that are dependent on their cars or they have to use their cars depending on their job or if they have kids or whatever. Whatever reason, people still need to have their cars. They still have those lanes available to them. But you will have that dedicated lane that is for BRT that you could utilize as well. Gotcha. Wow. Cool. Um, Is there anything else you want to talk about with how this imaginary money could get spent. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, realistically, you, there are natural steps to progression. So you wouldn't just, you know, even if $350 million fell out of the sky tomorrow, you wouldn't want to just lay down a BRT system. You have to go through testing phases. You want to implement, you know, you want to go through phases of frequency first and building a robust system. You want to put more buses out on South College Road, Carolina Beach Road, Market Street to see how they perform, to see if this is even a market and there's a temperament for something like that. So you want to do it gradually and you want to make sure that it's successful. Anytime that you're, you know, investing that much money, it needs to be a success. And that needs to be done by showing successes over over years and time and gathering data and making sure that you're putting the money where the need is. 
So you don't start by slapping down the concrete. You do not. <laughs> you need to build the foundation first and make sure that the interest is there and the people are there and to make sure that it's going to be utilized. And then after that, you want to graduate into something like that. We've talked a little bit about this on previous episodes of mm-hmm. the newsroom, but I am curious about what kind of difference you think it would make to just up the frequency of some of your more popular routes from an hour or every 40 minutes to every 15, every 10 minutes. So it's not bus rapid transit in that it's separated, but it is that frequent so people can expect that the bus will come within a reasonable amount of time, no matter when they show up. Right. And that's one of the number one complaints, and not just for this city, just for any city. If you do a survey, the number one um, complaint is it's not convenient. If I can drive my car in 15, 20 minutes and get there, why would I take a bus that takes an hour and a half to two hours? You wouldn't. So you do have to increase frequencies. That is the very backbone is getting people to ride transit and to make it a viable option is to make sure that you have an abundance of frequencies and units that are dependable, reliable and safe and clean and people want to use it. So for someone like me, I am not only just an employee, but I am a proponent for public transit. If I go to a different city, I don't ever rent a car. I'm always looking for, you know, if I go to D.C., I'm looking for something that's on subway line, the metro. If you go to another city, Atlanta, you're going to look for something that's near public transit. And people from larger cities do tend to do that. They're going to different places and they're looking for what your transit score is. So if you have people moving from California, people moving from north, people that are from states that have had a robust transit system, that's something they look for in the city that they want to move to. So it's it's just a benefit to all the citizens. We want to have something that is robust and usable. Yeah. Uh, I suppose I'd like to know what your annual budget would be if you did up the frequency along some of those major routes to, to what you've discussed um, fifteen every 15 minutes um, and going later and starting earlier in the day? Um, it's, it's very difficult to say it would be this. Um, it depends on, again, you have to look at the data analysis and where the current usage is. So, you know, we have high usage on 108, on the Route 108 Market Street. So we want to increase increased frequencies there, we would start there. You wouldn't put 15-minute frequencies on a route that's not currently productive. You may increase it to, you know, 45 minutes or something similar just to see if there's going to be any uptick in the ridership. But if you already have something that's overwhelmed or something that's producing, that's where you dump your resources into. And there's always opportunities in expanding your hours, but they're typically less productive by nature in any transit system. The later that you get in the evening, the earlier you get in the morning, you are serving people because people do go to work in those hours, but by nature is a lot less people. So you have, you know, the crux of your your ridership is somewhere between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. So very difficult to pinpoint an exact number of what, you know, a reasonable budget would be to get to a, a robust system like what we've discussed. I think a lot of stuff can be accomplished when with any amount of money. You know, if there's any future dedicated funding, whether it be $2 million, $5 million, $7 million, $10 million, whatever the number is, there's going to be a way that we're going to be able to utilize that to have a better, efficient, more frequent service, maybe in not all of the city, but in certain portions of the city, Definitely. The town I went to school in for my undergrad, the budget there is over 110 million a year, mm-hmm. and here it's less than 10 million. So, and they're similar size cities. 
uh, sort of similar service areas. And that's a town that has two BRT lines that are very well utilized. And I mean, they're packed to the gills during student passing times next to the university. So there's a lot that could get done with transit. (laughs) There is. And, you know, we're looking, like I said, we're looking forward to any amount of money that can be invested in this system. We are evaluating on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, seeing, you know, what can we do better? How can we reduce uh, redundancies or any waste that we currently have in any future revenues? You know, trying to plan for those ahead of time and make sure that we have the best laid plan for any possibilities that may come our way. And then if not, we'll just try to make our system the best that it is and that it can be in the future. I guess here's where you might want to mention that quarter cent sales tax, right? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's not promised, and there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into something that's such a huge decision. So I think maybe if if now is not the time, maybe there may be a future opportunity to do that. There's also different revenue sources that could be explored. There also could be property tax. There's a lot of different avenues that could be explored. So we're not hanging our hat on that or being dependent on that. It is something that we hope will happen. And again, maybe if it's not in the near future, it's in the in the far future and we can start planning for that as well. Gotcha. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that's it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Marie. Sure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to my guests, Katrina Knight, Glenn Harbeck, Deborah Dix-Maxwell, and Marie Parker for helping us explore some of the possibilities within reach for the county if it were to use the financial resources it has available. Shout out to WHQR reporter Cami Mojica for her inaugural appearance on The Newsroom. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Vernell, and our editor is Ben Schachman. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.